Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to give you a moment just to jump in there with us this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 4, it says this. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but love rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this day. It's a great opportunity that we have as a church to come together to open up your word, to read from it, to learn from it. Father, I pray as we examine your word today that you would challenge us, that you would change us, that you would shape us, that you would speak to us. God, that you would unite us. May we be a church united. May we be a body of Christ standing under the banner of Jesus Christ as one, our families, our homes, our community. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. And we all said, amen, amen. Well, hey, good morning, church. It's good to see you. Good to be with you. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, you are joining us on a great day. We are study, we're starting a brand new series today, right now. Can you believe it? Brand new series uh, called Family Pandemic. Yeah, Family Pandemic. In fact, if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write down the title of this, of this sermon. It's called Quarantine Love. Quarantine Love. And actually today, what we're going to be talking about today and next week, we're going to be talking about... Uh, just our marriages, okay? And all this month, we're actually going to be talking about our families, and, uh, and, and you're like, wow, a series on, on family right now in June? Yes, we have found that over the last couple months, as we have been in quarantine during this pandemic, that we are see, seeing the breakdown of a lot of families, so the family unit. We're seeing a lot of uh, counseling taking place and, and people wanting to get divorced, and, and we're spending a lot of time with our kids. It's, it's just been a challenging part, right? And so we're going to talk about that as a church. We're going to talk about what does it look like uh, today specifically to have a healthy marriage, okay? And so we're just going to jump right into it. Um, if you remember a, a few months ago, we actually talked about this thing called a covenant. Now, our church is called Covenant, but we talked about this, this covenant from God. And, and we talked about the fact that God's covenant with us is so important. And part of the reason is, is, is that God views us, okay, through the lens of covenant. Maybe write that down. God views us through the lens of covenant. You know that we're a church that worships in spirit and in truth. That's right. So write these truths down. We're going to take them to our small groups later this week. We call those sea life groups, okay? And God sees love differently. He sees us differently. He sees love differently than we do because he views it through the lens of covenant. God sees faithfulness differently than we do because he views it through the lens of covenant. God sees grace differently. God sees mercy differently. God sees justice differently because they're all seen through the lens of the covenant that we've read about in the Old Testament and the new covenant that was established through Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you a couple examples of what I mean, okay? In Genesis, open up to Genesis. Genesis chapter 9, this is the story of, of Noah. You know this, right? And we read in verse 11 that God establishes a covenant with Noah where he says that I will never flood the earth again, at least not in this capacity. You know Noah, Noah in the ark. And uh, God sends this flood, destroys a good portion of the earth, but yet Noah and his family 
are saved, okay? And he establishes this covenant with, with Noah, with, with mankind, that he's never going to do this again, okay? This is a pretty big covenant, okay? It's the Noahic covenant. And it's God saying that, that we can rest in him, that we can trust him, that he will protect us. Pretty big deal. And so you would think that Noah's response to God's covenant would be one of gratefulness, one of thankfulness. But let's pick up in, in Genesis 9, verse 21, and let's see how Noah responds to the covenant that God gives to him, okay? In verse 21, we see this. And Noah drank wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Okay, not exactly what we were expecting. I mean, here you have Noah and his family who have survived the greatest flood ever that wiped out everybody, right? God saves them, establishes a covenant with them, shows them mercy, grace, and hope. And what is Noah's response? What is it? Failure. Noah gets ripped on some ark hooch and goes streaking. We see God establishing a covenant and Noah fails. And yet God responds to failure with faithfulness. How do we know? Because his covenant still stood with Noah. Further along in Genesis chapter, we, Genesis chapter 15, we see uh, God establishing a covenant with Abraham. He promises Abraham that he will give him many offspring and great land. That's a huge covenant. In fact, it's a covenant that established Israel to a large degree. Just over in chapter 15. How does Abraham respond to God's covenant? Well, let's see. He gives him the covenant in chapter 15, and then in chapter 16, we read this, starting in verse 1, it says this, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. There's a, there's a name for a lady, Hagar. <laughs> and uh, Sarah, I'm sorry if your name's Hagar, it's a beautiful name. Um, and, and Sarah said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from having or bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Notice this next part now. And Abram listened to the voice of who? Of God? No, of Sarah. So we see in chapter 15 of Genesis, God establishing an incredible covenant with Abraham where he promises him more children than the stars in the heaven and more land than he could imagine. And what is Abraham's response? Failure. Abraham gets impatient on the promise and he sleeps with his wife's servant. Yet God's covenant with Abraham still stands. God responds to failure with faithfulness. Why? Because of his covenant. And listen, listen, church, I could go on and on with these examples. God established a covenant with Moses, and Moses fails, and yet God responds with faithfulness. God establishes a covenant with David. David fails big time, and yet God responds in faithfulness. See, the point is this. If you're writing this down, write this down. God's love for us is not based on a contract. God's love for us is based on a covenant. See, emotion is secondary to God when it comes to love. Covenant is primary. I mean, was God angry, disappointed with Noah when he got drunk and lay naked? Sure. Was God angry with Abraham when he slept with his wife's servant to get kids? Yes. Was God displeased with Moses and David when they failed? Of course. But his response was one rooted in covenant. And because God is always a covenant-keeping God, his response, even to our failure, is always faithfulness. Now, this doesn't mean that there isn't discipline. This doesn't mean that there isn't correction. But all of that is done within the understanding that God will not break his covenant with us. I don't know if you know this or not, but God's love for us is faithful. 
God's love for us is dependent on his supremacy, not on our shortcomings. Now, such is not the case with us, right? I mean, let's just be honest. I, I wish that I loved people out of the supremacy of God. I just, I just don't. We don't necessarily view love uh, uh, covenantally, do we? We have a more contractual view of love. I think that's true. We do ridiculous things to make people earn our love and do even more ridiculous things to make people keep our love. Well, if you really loved me, you would do this. Well, now that you say you love me, then you should keep doing this, like over and over. But I'm so thankful, aren't you, church? I'm so thankful that this is not how God makes us or asks us or commands us to love him. Not at all. And this is, this, is, this is how we often view marriage, but such is not the case with God. Listen, listen, I want to I show you real quick how, how God views love. Jump over to Ephesians, okay? Ephesians chapter 5. I love this passage. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says this, starting in verse tw- uh, uh, 21. Yeah, starting in verse 31, actually. It says this, okay? In verse 31, we read this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. They shall become one flesh. A husband and a wife come together. See, according to Scripture, God views views marriage covenantally, not even contractually. Look at the indications here. The two become one. And then it goes on to say that a marriage is representative of Jesus and the church. What is this referring to? It's referring to a covenant. It's referring to a covenant. The covenant that Jesus cut on our behalf to know God. See, covenants aren't just made. Covenants were cut. The Hebrew word there is karath barith, okay? If you were to go back into this word covenant, to make a covenant is to cut a covenant. There had to be blood involved, karath barith. And so we see this new karath barith, this new cutting of a covenant in the new covenant with Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. A covenant is cut for us, covering us. And that picture of Christ and his church is a picture of our marriage and is a picture of the covenant that we have. But we don't view marriage, do we? Let's be honest, as covenantal. We see it as contractual. Maybe the first thing you have to understand about marriage is that God views marriage as a covenant, not a contract. In fact, if you're sitting with your spouse right now, look over, look over at them and just say, God views marriage as a covenant and not a contract. See, when it comes to marriage, I want you to understand this. God wants us to have extraordinary marriages. He wants us to have extraordinary marriages, not ordinary marriages. As followers of Jesus, our marriages are are one of the first places that people look to see if we actually practice what we believe. Here's the truth. You can be a great communicator or a great leader or a great businessman or businesswoman. You can have it all together over here, right? But if people see that you disrespect your wife and the, the way you talk about her, or if people know that you disrespect your husband, it raises questions in regard to you walking out what you say that you stand for. Come on, somebody. I know I'm getting in your lunchbox today, but you know it's true. I mean, come on, you say that you stand for Jesus and his love. You say that you believe in and stand in the gospel, but do you mar- does your marriage actually reflect that? Do our marriages reflect that? Quite honestly, I fear that too many of our marriages paint Jesus, the gospel, and God's covenant in a bad light. 
bad light. See, God's desire from the beginning has always been to live in covenant with us and his desire for your marriage is for you and your spouse to live in covenant with each other. All the contracts in the world with their rules and contingencies and stipulations will never give you an extraordinary marriage. Some of you need to understand that. It will never give you an extraordinary marriage. See, contracts don't make extraordinary marriages. Contracts make ordinary marriages. And one of the biggest problems in our marriages today is that we have become okay with ordinary. Quite frankly, we've just been okay with surviving. I mean, it's not fulfilling, it's not great, but huh, what are you going to do? Like, I'm just living it out, grinding it out, you know? I mean, how does this happen? No one writes books about ordinary love stories, do they? I mean, when's the last time you picked up an ordinary love story like, this is my favorite one? Nobody does that. No one longs for the day when they can have an ordinary marriage. You know, no, no little boy or no little girl is like, I can't wait to get married and have an ordinary marriage. Nobody does that. We want an extraordinary love story, right? We want, like, we want the notebook all over the place in our lives. No one buys the book entitled The Princess Who Had an Ordinary Marriage. No, we want adventure. We want passion. We want excitement. We want intimacy. We want commitment to one another for all time, forever and ever. And so what I'm telling you is that the only way to have an extraordinary marriage is to view marriage the way that God does, through the lens of covenant. Now, one of the signs of a marriage moving from a covenant to a contract, okay? Covenant to contract, you still with me now? Just kind of give me some, uh, some emojis on, down here in the feed if you're still with me, okay? Because we're going to switch gears. This is going to get to really practical teaching, okay? One of the ways that you can understand that you have maybe moved from a covenantal view of marriage to a contractual view of marriage is this word discontentment. If you are discontent, right? Discontentment is, is usually tied to unrealistic or in the least unmet expectations. Now, the problem with discontentment is in our marriages is that if it convinces us that if we were just a little bit more of this or, or that or, or accomplished a little bit more of something else, then we would be content. Or if our spouse was just a little bit better, right, then, then we would be content. They would be content. But let's just be honest. Discontentment is hard to satisfy, maybe even impossible, and it will turn your marriage into an ordinary marriage. In a contractual marriage, our spouse can never be quite good enough, right? They don't fold the laundry up to your standards. They don't keep the house as clean as you would like. They don't manage finances up to your expectations. They can always be a little bit more in shape, a little bit more put together. It's contractual. See, discontentment tries to convince us that we would be happier with a new storyline or maybe even a new love story altogether. It's funny because when we first met, we were so impressed with all that our spouses are and all that our spouses do before they were our spouses, right? We loved their sense of humor. We, we would admire their ability to take risks. Maybe we were even blown away by their organization, organizational skills or their, their laid back attitude. It seems like everything they are is everything that I'm not and I, and I love it that way. <laughs> They're punctual, we're fashionably late. They're emotional, we're logical. They're impulsive and, and we're very calculated. There's this beautiful sense in us that all of our weaknesses are fulfilled by their strengths and all of our strengths are fulfilled by all of their weaknesses. It's perfect. 
We complement each other. Of course, this is a, a union that God put together, right? We were designed for one another. We are the yin to their yang. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. But then you get married. <laughs> Can I just be honest? Then you get married and time goes by and the love story starts to crack. And it cracks hard. I mean, over time, the strengths that we saw in our spouses the comp that complemented our weaknesses become weaknesses that complicate our strengths. Let me just say that again. The strengths that we saw in our spouses that complemented our weaknesses, now after we're married and some time has gone by, become weaknesses that complicate our strengths. We begin to resent that they're laid back. We get mad that they always have to be on time, maybe. We hate the way that they lay out their clothing before they go to bed or how outgoing they are all the time or how they just want to take risks or, or, or just whatever it is. And what was once attractive now creates a sense of discontentment in our hearts. They aren't good enough. They aren't sensitive enough. They aren't pretty enough. They aren't handsome enough. They aren't interesting enough. And what I'm trying to say is that discontentment always pushes us to compare what we have to what somebody else has. Even more, dis even more dangerous is that discontentment will always push you to compare who our sp spouses are to who someone else is. And so we go from being madly in love to just being mad. Quick tempers, strong words, harsh looks. There's a problem in the contract, but it doesn't end here because no one ever just stops at discontentment. No, discontentment leads to, write this down now, entitlement. In our marriages, discontentment leads to entitlement. Entitlement is always the chapter that follows the storyline of discontentment. Entitlement says that when our spouses fail to meet our expectation, we're owed even more. You owe me. You messed up. You owe me. In fact, if the title of chapter uh, one in your love story reads entitlement, then the subheading would be you owe me. That's the subheading of the, of the chapter, right? You want to go out with your friends? That's fine, but you owe me. You want to go shopping with your sister and leave me here with the kids? Sure. Just remember, you owe me. You expect me to have dinner on the table when you get home from work? You owe me. You want me to work more hours so you can be a stay-at-home mom? Fine, but you owe me. You owe me. You want me to have sex with you right now? Right now? Fine, you owe me. See, most of us get married with a high sense of gratitude. We have a high sense of gratitude. We're excited. We, we love it. But as our love story plays out, everything we used to be grateful for, we now begin to feel entitled to. Listen to me, church. You can't simultaneously be grateful for something while feeling entitled to it. Can I just get an amen? Maybe just write some amens down here in the feed for me just so that I know that you're alive. You can't simultaneously be grateful for something while equally feeling entitled to it. Entitlement turns your extraordinary love story into an ordinary one very quickly. It turns teammates into opponents. It allows us to overlook what we can give to our marriage and see only what we are owed in the marriage. Well, he messed up, so she, he owes me. She messed up, so she owes me. Owes me big time. And here's the deeper issue. In a contractual marriage, we have stipulations and contingencies. And if those contingencies aren't met, then we are free to break the contract. We have an out. Hmm. Isn't it interesting that conditions and stipulations never make their way into our wedding day? 
but they often take center stage in our marriage. You know, I've done a lot of weddings, but I've never done one where uh, stipulations and contingencies made their way into the wedding vows. Do you, Jim, take Sarah to be your wife until death do you part or until she begins to nag you every day? I do. No, it's, you just don't hear that ever. That's just not a thing that happens. Do you, Sarah, take Jim to be your husband till death do you part or until he forgets to take out the garbage 10 times in a row? I do. How romantic. Wow, it's just a beautiful thing. No, not at all. We don't do that. Chapter one in an extraordinary marriage is contractual love and chapter two is discontent. And chapter three is entitlement. And the final chapter to an ordinary love story, right, is always going to be resent. That's the cycle. It's always going to be resent. And this is a pandemic of sorts. In our families, all across our nation and our world, right now, we are going through love in our, in our marriages that is, quite frankly, very quarantined, very isolated. In fact, today, as I, just, as I speak and, and, and read through Scripture and talk to you about marriage, some of you right now, you are sitting next to your spouse, but don't lie, you feel isolated. You feel alone. You don't talk the way that you used to talk. There's no passion in your marriage. There's no intimacy whatsoever. It's just wake up, go through the motions, go to bed. Every day is the same. And where this leads, where this ends, this quarantined love, the final chapter is resentment. And I say it's the final chapter. Because this is where all ordinary, contractually-based marriages eventually lead. End of story. When you resent someone, you, you don't even want to be around them. You don't even want to see them. You don't want anything to do with them. Resent feels like this. Uh, you walk downstairs, and he's got his, you know, his cocoa puffs, and he's just sitting there just reading the back of the box, just eating his cereal. And you walk down, and you're like, look at him over there. Just eating that cereal. Ugh. He hasn't even done anything. He hasn't done anything at all. He's, the man is just eating his Cocoa Puffs and you just hate on him. And, and, and it switches too. Maybe she's downstairs, just she's making some dinner or she's like, she's washing the dishes or she's doing her thing, talking to her friends and you just walk in and you're like, oh, look at the way that she's talking on the phone. Ugh. That's resentment. That's resentment. The chapters in an ordinary love story read discontentment, entitlement, resentful. Then the chapter in an extraordinary love story should read content, grateful, and enduring. Content, grateful, and enduring. We cannot let resentment get into our hearts towards our spouse. We must turn back the time. We must go back chapters and rewrite this story. We cannot end in resentfulness. We must get to content, grateful, and enduring. In fact, let me give you an example of what our marriages should look like viewed through covenant. First Corinthians chapter 13. I know that you know this passage. First Corinthians chapter 13. We read it to start off, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm in 2 Corinthians. How many of you are thankful that you can turn on your Bibles and punch in a verse and it's just there? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I want to read to you what a covenantal marriage looks like. What covenantal love looks like. Not contractual, but covenantal. It says this. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
Someone out there, I'm preaching to somebody this morning. Your love needs to be kind. I love you. I said I would. I still do. No, love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. It's, it's not insistent on its own way. It's not irritable or what's that next word, church? What is it? Say it out loud. Resentful. No. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, maybe you might say, okay, well, real quick, Pastor Travis, uh, when Scripture says all things, it means all things. It means everything, endures all things, believes all things, hopes all things, bears all things. This description isn't something that just sounds good when you read it at a wedding. It's actually an outline of God's vision for a covenant marriage, for an extraordinary marriage. And a marriage built on a contractual agreement will always fall short of these covenant ideals. So what then? What are we to do? If the love in our marriage has become quarantined, if, if we're stuck in an ordinary marriage, how do we go about turning it into an extraordinary one? Well, I'm glad you asked. Seriously, I'm really glad you asked. Here's the truth. Many of us today need to go back and rewrite our love story. And the first chapter should be named Covenant Love. Now, we're going to be unpacking this all month. But suffice it to say, you first need to find, okay, you first need to find our, our contentment, your contentment in Jesus. Grateful for all that he's done. Understanding of how enduring his love is for us. We need to sit down with our spouse. Have a frank and honest, short maybe, conversation. We need to repent of our view of love and marriage. And we need to ask God for healing and restoration. We already know that if we already know that he is good, we already know that he's always going to be faithful, and if this is God's view of marriage, then then honestly church, it should be ours. If scripture tells us that love is patient, kind, and doesn't envy or boast or arrogant, it's not rude, then your love towards your spouse should not be mean. It should not be hateful. There is no excuse. It should never be that way. And if you find that it is, or if you find that it has been, I'm going to be very honest with you, you need to repent. Yeah, I'm talking to you, husband. You need to repent. You have been in the wrong. Yes, I'm talking to you, wife. You have been wrong. You need to repent. If you are lording the sin over somebody's head, even if they, after they have apologized, you said you've forgiven them, or maybe you won't forgive them, but if you're holding it over their head, you are not loving them the way that Christ has loved you. How can we not love others based on the love that Christ has given to us? Well, I do love him. I do love him, but I'm not going to be a doormat. Nobody wants you to be a doormat. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you could be a doormat. That's not what I'm talking about here. I feel like I keep mentioning this over and over and over. It's just in my spirit, which means it's in our church, apparently, right? You can forgive somebody without trusting them. Listen, I forgive you. I'll forgive you right now. Forgiveness is, is immediate, but trust takes years to build. So some of you husbands, I'm just going to be straight up honest with you, okay? You've asked for forgiveness because you messed up in whatever area it might be. And your wife has forgiven you, but you're upset that she doesn't trust you. And that's on you. That's not her fault. That's on you, man. <laughs> 
And now what you do have to do, you're not working to earn her love, but you are working to build her trust. Whoo, that's good. You're not working to earn her love, but now because you failed, you are working to earn her trust or may vice versa. You're not working to earn his love, but you're working to earn his trust because you broke your trust. That doesn't mean that the, that the, that the, that the covenant is broken. But if our, view is, if our view is contractual, then we're just done. We're just out. Now, I want to close with this. I, I want us as a church to have healthy, extraordinary, covenantal marriages. Marriages that say, no matter what, I'm in this. No matter what, I'm with you. No matter what, I love you. I forgive you. Not based on what you've done, but based on what's been done for me. If you find that you are in bitterness, if you find that you are in entitlement, if you find that you are eking ever so close to being completely numb and resentful, it's not too late. Take a moment right now. In fact, right where you are, if you're sitting on your couch with your spouse or at the, at the dining room table, I don't know where you are. Maybe you're in your living room, maybe you're in your bedroom, wherever. I, I want to challenge you. And I, I quite literally mean this, okay? I want to challenge you right now as a husband and a, and a wife, maybe even as a whole family. I want you to do something that maybe you haven't done before ever. Or maybe you've only maybe seen it in movies or something. I want you to, I want, I want us to get on our knees and pray. Kind of unique. We can't really do this, you know, when we're in a movie theater where we normally meet. Kind of difficult. Who knows what's on that floor? Um, but right now in your own home, in the convenience and comfort of your own home, you can. Right now. You're like, right? Right now? Yes, right now. Right now. Right now. I want you to grab your spouse's hand, your kids' hands, if you got some kids. I want you as a, as a husband and a wife, as a family, to get on your knees. Lean up on the couch if you need to. Lean up on your chair if you need to. And I want you to ask God to make your marriage a covenantal one. Not one built on a contract, not one built on effort, not one built on what one person can do or has done, but one built on the rock that is Jesus Christ. Right now, I'll lead you in some prayer. Let's pray. God, right now, we want to ask that our marriages would become covenantal in nature. God, we want to ask that you would take our weakness and shine your strength. Lord, that you would heal us. Make us husbands and wives who can readily forgive. Make us husbands and wives who are willing to take the first step. Make us husbands and wives who love one another, forgive one another, have grace and mercy on one another, not based on what they've done or what we could do, but based on Jesus. Change our marriages. Change our families, change our homes. We love you. You are good. We believe in you. You are our hope. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. We all said, 